Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Gary Mansfield, and welcome to the Mizog Art Podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by banging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode number 29 of the Mizog Art Podcast. This week I'm speaking to curator, art dealer and the producer of the Curator Salon Podcast, Miss Geeta Joshi. Geeta and I have been speaking to each other on social media about our podcast over the last few months. We've been speaking about which artists we've got on and who we'd like to have on in the future. And during that conversation we decided it'd be quite a good idea if we were the focus of each other's podcasts. So a few weeks ago, we met up at the Newport Street Gallery during the Martin Elder exhibition. We walked around the exhibition, getting to know each other a little bit better, and then went upstairs to the cafeteria. Because it was relatively quiet, and I don't mind a bit of atmospheric noise on this podcast, we decided it might be best to record the episode of the Curator's Salon first. So I ordered a couple of coffees while Geeta set up her equipment. We sat down and got underway. We was in a canteen, so there was a little bit of background noise. You can hear the radio and the clanking of cups and saucers. But it was very much bearable. You'll find out yourself when you go and have a listen, if you haven't already. And then when we was finished, Geeta went and ordered a couple of coffees while I set up the equipment to record this episode. And as we recorded, a few more people came into the canteen, which was expected for a Saturday afternoon. But then a little while in, in walks a family of five. And where did they decide to sit? Yes, on the table right next to us. I was hoping they would have noticed all the recording equipment and microphones on the table. There was that many, it was as if Geeta was doing an interview at the UN. And if you've ever been there yourself, you'll know that 
there's some Damien Hurst artworks in a cafeteria. You can hear the young lad asking his dad about the one next to him and dad telling him all about it. But for the next few minutes, it was getting louder and louder. The ridiculousness of the situation did get the better of Geeter and I. So come and join me in the Newport Street Gallery with curator, art dealer and the Curator Salon podcast host, Geeta Joshi. This afternoon, I'm sitting in the Newport Street Gallery Cafe with Geeta Joshi. Hello, Geeta. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. We've just recorded a podcast with Geeta Joshi for her podcast, which is called The Curator Salon. I'll go straight into my first question, Geeta, of seven. How would you explain Geeta Joshi to someone that didn't know you? I wish I could answer it in like just two words or something, but it's a bit more complicated than that. And so it should be. I am a curator. I'm an art dealer. I am a podcaster. So, I mean, but all of these things kind of feel like job titles as well. Um, I think in what I've noticed recently over, you know, a lot of the work I've been doing, it's actually around promoting artists. And I think, though I didn't start the podcast to actually just do that, it was actually to bring uh, the conversations I was having with artists more into the public domain and invite more people into them. I've actually realised that, you know, it is a bit of a, it's its own platform as well. And I think one of the connections through my work over the last several years as curator, art dealer, you know, charity trustee and all these things is actually, you know, somebody that promotes artists. Yeah. And I think that's that's the sort of connecting thread through a lot of that. So um, I don't know what that is if you're going to turn it into a job title. Yeah. <laughs> There's, well, you've got sort of many hats and, and I suppose we all put on a different hat depending on where we are that day and and what we're about to do yeah and I think you know a lot of my work at the moment is around um, helping artists actually um, build their own businesses by promoting themselves but then I also work with them in a in a sort of um, a joint capacity like I you know get into their business with them Mm. to actually help them do some of the execution on that as well so rather than just saying oh you need to sort of I don't know change up whatever you know how they're sort of bringing people in through their Instagram or their emailing or whatever it is, um, that's what oftentimes what they're stuck on. So that is what I'm actually helping yeah. them with within that business. So it's actually helping them kind of, um, yeah, like I said, sort of build more sustainable art businesses. But um, again, it is about um, helping them to sort of promote themselves mm. because you can't always rely on other people to do no, that. So. No, and your podcast, you bring in different, um, I don't know if you'd call them experts, but people who have got a lot of knowledge in a specific field. With uh, you mean in terms of like business context yeah. and things like that? Yeah, that's right. Because, like I said, that because that's sort of sort of work I'm doing. It's an audience. I have a Facebook group and things like that, um, which is where we do a lot of teaching and things. But um, yeah, I just think it's really interesting to have those sort of conversations with other experts that have very niche experience. Yeah. But then tailor that towards the art world because. You know, art, you know, when you're selling art, it essentially it is a luxury item. You are going to appeal to a small percentage of people yeah. that can afford it, usually. Um, and then, obviously, within the aesthetic as well, that, you know, there's even fewer people, right, mm. compared to somebody that is selling, I don't know, software or socks yeah, or something yeah. like that. So, so it's quite well, everyone, niche. Everyone uses the same sort of tools, whether they're mm-hmm. selling 
original fine arts, whether they're selling prints or whether they're selling arts and crafts. It's all... Yeah, but I think a lot of that comes through um, storytelling and how you communicate that. You know, I think one of the advantages artists have is that they usually have very interesting stories, you know, and they um, kind of play it down oftentimes on the artist statement or they think the artist statement is in itself their story but it rarely is which Mm. is one of the things that we often bring out in the podcast and the conversations I have with the ones I work with and stuff. See myself I was quite conscious for quite a while about mentioning prison. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a stereotypical prison artist but then I found out there isn't a stereotypical prison artist out there. I was quite not unique I mean there's plenty of artists who have sort of stepped inside a, a prison cell as it were um but yeah I, as I say I, I tried to pull away from mine and found out that it was probably my main tool rather than something to push away you know but it's also for you part of um you know like you had a very transformational moment mm. um you know, like with when you were in prison, right? Yeah. Around sort of taking up art classes and then sort of being ex- exposed to conceptual art and things like that. And actually, you made very conscious choices, like mm. actually, that was the life you wanted. Yeah. And I think those are, you know, those sort of pivotal points that people have within their own stories. You know, if it's not prison, then it might be like becoming a mother or yeah. the loss of yeah. a loved one or something that you didn't think was actually related to. Mm to your creative practice or your creative journey was actually the trigger after all. How did you come into art? Was art always around you when you were growing up? Not necessarily as a young kid, um, but it was, I think I did um, art history at A-level and I think that was the first time I really was taking a subject that uh, really resonated with me, something I just sort of very intuitively understood, something I... Um, was never sated with, you know, I was constantly wanting to see more and learn more and read more and all of that. Um, and that was art history, so of course we were looking at a lot of 19th century things yeah, and yeah. You know, very old things rather than contemporary art. But I think for me that was probably the point where I realised that was um, that was my path somewhere and quite how that would be fulfilled I didn't mm. know. Um, and did an art history degree But, yeah, and then I worked for a Royal Commission in London, which was my first job. And actually, you know, a lot of that, and then working at an architect's practice, looking back, a lot of that was around exhibiting, but it wasn't wasn't what I recognised at the time. But it wasn't until I um, did... I mean, I I worked in finance for many years, and even during that time I was doing part-time courses and sort of keeping one hand in... Um, the art world but just as a as a consumer you know I would go to the big exhibitions and I would do classes and go to talks and things like that I was volunteering at things like London Open House and so on Mm. Um, so still a lot of what I was doing was around art history rather than contemporary art and certainly nothing in terms of contributing to that um, space Um, but so it wasn't really until I did curating um, some curatorial training at uh, Central St Martins that I actually realised well all this sort of time in the business world and my business experience yeah. combined with the curating was actually the thing I should be doing and there was a way of actually probably making a living out of it as well because I think for many years I thought that to work in the art world meant that you had to work in a museum and we knew that all those jobs were yeah, taken yeah. by a handful of uh, people that came all came out of the same universities yeah, and, and that was very very closed even on the shitty mm. you know minimum wages yeah yeah so yeah so that was it really it was that sort of bringing together the um, 
curating and, and the business experience that made me think, aha, there was a yeah. way forward that I could create my own path. Yeah, yeah. You see, you pretty much sort of found your own avenue, as it were. You you studied art history, and obviously art history is extremely broad. What was the type of art that you would go and see that you liked yourself? Um, for me, it was a lot of pre-Raphaelite stuff. Yeah, yeah a lot of that um, at the Tate Britain, um, but also the Victorian collections around um, the regional museums as well. You know, I think that that was... Um, uh, a massive influence and then uh, places like Kettle's Yard as well yeah. um, and you know the artists like Ben Nicholson and um, those sort of people that sh- sort of showed both there and in other places but I think those those were the most sort of uh, influential um, pieces in terms of art history for me. Is there a specific artwork that that you would call your favourite for instance? It's a hard one. I can't think of a single one, but I can think of, um, again, Kettle's Yard, you know, as a space, as an environment, mm. I think is incredible. You know, I, I love that place. Um, I think, I think I sort of, yeah, I don't sort of identify it as a single artwork, but it is more the whole experience yeah. of, of that place. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an extremely hard one to pin down, isn't it? But um, inspiration, where do you go for inspiration? Or if not inspiration, where do you go to relax? The coast. I like going out, looking out to sea. But I think artist studios actually. You know, if we're going to have the you know the deeper yeah. conversations, the bigger conversations, I find that both relaxing and energising in equal measure. Mm. The Camberwell Open. Did you start the Camberwell Open? I did. You yeah. Found it. I did. Yeah. It was. Um, it's an open exhibition that um, took place alongside the Camberwell Arts Festival because I was um, working, you know, with them on the, as a board member, and I wanted to, as a curator, actually have my own project yeah. rather than only supporting the festival's own activities. So I had this idea of an open exhibition. And the idea of it was to present a snapshot of creative practice from across SE5 mm. or artists associated with Camberwell. And um, yeah, so it ran um, for two festivals. And then last year, it, um, not last year, the year before, I ended up uh, picking up the Open Studios program. So I didn't have the capacity to run the open exhibition as well. Oh, yeah. And then last year I kind of pulled away from um, the whole festival thing because I was sort of focusing on other projects. Mm. And I thought, well, the open uh, would could still happen and I might sort of run it in the autumn. One thing and another, various things got in the way and it didn't happen. So it is on my radar to sort of bring around again. Yeah. Because I think it was actually really, it was actually quite an important exhibition in some ways because... A lot of artists, or Camberwell, you know, is very, is very creative. Obviously, we've got the art school, we've got the, you know, the South yeah, London Gallery yeah. is there. There's hundreds of um, artists sort of um, living and working in that environment, but not all of them have studios that they can show from yeah. from open studios. So when we actually had the open exhibition, it meant loads more people kind of were able to come out and actually show their work, mm. and it also gave artists that were perhaps exhibiting for the first time 
that little bit of extra encouragement to do yeah. that and put their work in the public domain. Um, they were able to see their work alongside more established artists. Um, so it actually achieved sort of many, many things, yeah. But I think if I run it again, I'll probably do it in um, some kind of a, a different space. The space we used for the last couple of shows we can't use anyway uh, because they're under new management and they've yeah. reconfigured that space. But, yeah, I'm sort of thinking about ways of doing Did it Did you again. learn much from it, from doing an open like that? It's quite interesting because, like, for me, there are curatorial projects that sometimes when I conceive them... I know the whole thing. Yeah, because you've got a lot of control over your a single show. Yeah. But when it's an open like that, it's you do have to loosen the reins a little bit, I would imagine. Um, well, we had some parameters in place, like the artwork couldn't be over certain dimensions. Yeah. Um, a single artist couldn't submit more than... I don't know how many it was. Like, maybe they couldn't submit more than three pieces. Um... So there were criteria, and everything had to be 2D, it had to be wall hanging, mm. it had to be um, ready to, it had to be able to, to hang on a picture hook and stuff yeah. like that, so it had to be wired and things like that. So that we had all these instructions in place, um, but then I think there was one caveat, so that if it was, uh, in my opinion, offensive, then I had the right to reject it, but other yeah. than that, everything was... Um, That's a hard one to to judge as well isn't it offensive what would what would be deemed as offensive would it be nudity or not necessarily nudity but it I mean it could be if it was sort of in a a graphic or sort of violent nature I guess because Mm. we were showing in a very public place it was the foyer of a leisure centre oh well okay Um, and of course there were lots of children coming through there and so we just had to be mindful of that audience. Mm. So I think that's where it was. I guess swear words wouldn't have been yeah. appropriate. And that run for, did you say it run for two seasons? It did, yeah. Did it grow between the first and, the, or was there any difference between the first and the second? Did you do things any differently? Because I know that where I've put these face value shows on, I know that I learned, bearing in mind I had no experience beforehand. I learned a hell of a lot from the first going into the second. I think, um, like I was saying, it's like, you know, for me sometimes when I conceive shows, you know, I really know the whole thing inside out before it's even done. And that is like some kind of, like, that's just my, I don't know, gift? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. you'd call it. Right, in, in the same way, some artists just know how to use their material mm. or, you know, they know what how <clears> they can manipulate certain materials or... You know what they're trying to um, communicate. So I didn't actually have. You know, I was already coming at it with um, quite a degree of um, gallery experience yeah. as well. Because at that time, one of the show, when I had one of those shows, um, I had three shows on in London at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so this was a kind of a milestone in my own personal yeah. like career, right? So I had that show. I had one in the city of London, and I had one in um, uh, in central London as well. So it was. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I didn't learn. I'm sure I did. You could leave um, some space for the rest of us to show some work. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done anything in six months. So. Um, yeah, so I'm sure I did, but it, I think a lot of that particular show was around process, yeah. you know, and, and that's uh, what we're always kind of fine-tuning. I mean, as a gallerist, how did you become a gallerist? Um... 
I, I was invited to show at an art fair and I thought, okay, well, that sounds interesting. Let me do that. So I did. And um, I, I was kind of doing it because, you know, I really like the artists I was showing. Um, but it was also like, oh, my gosh, I need to get some artists together yeah, to show yeah. at this fair. And I need to sort out like, oh, my gosh, business side of things and a contract and all the things. So I was kind of moving into the art world, but not quite sure what I was doing. Mm. And, you know, being invited to sell, um, sell at this fair was really a kick in the pants to, like, get things into yeah, place, yeah. Uh, you know, within a certain time Make frame. Make a few decisions, yeah. Right. So um, that happened, but what actually happened was there, when I was actually at that affair, that's, I think, a real pivotal point for me where I actually realised how much I love talking to people about the artwork, getting them excited about yeah, the artwork yeah. and, you know, seeing their response and all that sort of thing and, you know, how, yeah, I just, I was able to sort of talk about it so easily, mm. you know, I was kind of in my comfort zone in many ways, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't feeling... Um, like scared about it or intimidated about it or anything it's just like no this is me this is what I represent these are the artists who you know I'm backing and this is why you should be interested in yeah. hey look at the fine detail here and there so I was kind of having those really kind of excited conversations and that's when I came back so that fair was in Manchester and um, I came back and um, thought oh my god that was just amazing I loved it um, I can do that all the time and I think I need to go and find a space so I basically put the feelers out to find a full time gallery space well, but that's a time, big move it was it's a big move from shining an art fair What's, what was the time frame between finishing the art fair and deciding to, to find a permanent space or even a physical well, space it, the decision was it was done you know that was it I needed to I put out the feelers about a week later, nice. so um, so I think that fair was in the end of September or early October, and put out the feelers for you know my contacts to reach out to their contacts to mm. do the thing, um, and basically I moved into the premises in the last week of November. And whereabouts was that? Um, it was in Waterloo, so yeah, central oh, London, wow. so yeah, Lower Marsh. And was that a big learning curve, or did it just sort of fall into well, place? Well, I, I mean, basically, I was taking on an ex-cafe, you know, it was a, a bit of a ramshackle space, it was a pop-up lease, so, you know, as much as I'm saying, you know, I was taking on a, a full-time gallery space, which is absolutely true, I was actually taking on a, a very short-term lease, it was yeah. six months, and that whole pop-up scene was, you know, pretty normal back then. I mean, it still is, but in a slightly more... Um, sanitised way now, right? Because now, you know, building developers are creating units that are for what they're calling pop-up, but they are already nice and clean and all that sort of thing. And back then, it was just like you were basically taking on an empty shop that had been empty for two years. And um, figuring out, like, you know, how to make it a usable space Mm. for for the thing that you want to do. So that is really... With a six-month contract, it could take you a month to get the... Yeah, it could, for sure. Get the walls clean enough to put hanging artwork on yeah and so that's kind of what you know that first couple of weeks was you know and I was really lucky to uh, be working with a friend who was also a really good builder and carpenter and all that sort of thing and um, we managed to kind of turn it around and put up new walls and conceal other bits that we didn't want to have on display like cooker hoods (laughs) (laughs) you know 
<laughs> and what did you call that gallery? It was called Awesomeja. And where did that name come from? I don't know, but it was just one day I had this sort of inspired idea and I don't know and it just sounded good so I thought and, perfect as good as and any. I just I really didn't want to have um, a gallery that had my name like Geeta yeah, Joshi yeah, Gallery yeah, yeah. like everybody does that I don't know why they do it I don't think it sounds great and you know there was um, the Curious Duke Gallery mm. as you know in East London I mean her name is Eleni Duke but you know I thought Curious Duke was a really cool name and then last year I met um, James at Fruta Gallery, and Fruta is a gallery both in uh, Rome and in Glasgow. And uh, he decided to call his gallery Fruta Gallery. And he was the same, it's like, oh, I hate those you yeah. know, galleries that are just named after a person. And that's just been a tradition, and there's, you know, I mean, now we obviously have got Jealous and Art Republic and those yeah, that have also yeah. been around for a while. But I just didn't want to be, um, yeah, have it that tightly named after me. Mm. It's like you see, just going off of it a little bit. I was when I'd done a podcast with Dave Buonaguidi a little while ago. He's into advertising, and he was saying that all advertising firms are just named after the three or five, three or four guys on the board, um, and it's a, a combination of their surnames, just like solicitors. So it's funny how people. I don't know if it's an ego thing or it's just a traditional thing that that people name themselves, uh, they name their business after themselves. I wouldn't think it's an ego thing, but you never know. I guess, or maybe it's just easier. I don't know. I mean, I, I call this podcast the Mizog Art Podcast. Yeah, why is that? A lot of people ask that. It's an old word. I thought it was an old Cockney word, but it turns out it was used a lot. My granddad, when I was whining as a little kid, he used to call me a Mizog. And since the internet, I've looked up to say, and I use Mizog myself when my kids are whining, uh, whining, stop being a Mizog. And I looked it up on um, the internet, and it says that it's a shortened version of a miserable, miserable old git, Miz OG. Oh. Whether that's true or not, but that's the, yeah, that's where I come from. Now I'm known as a Mizog, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> miserable old git. If you was putting on an exhibition with five artists, that you could choose any five artists or artworks. Living or dead? Or Either way. Oh, oh, it's a big question, actually, because I've, I've been thinking about, um, you know, which shows are ready for revival, to be honest. And, and one of the things on my mind was, there's a, you know, the John Moore's exhibition up in Liverpool, yeah. which is, you know, it's brilliant. And uh, I think one of the really influential um, exhibitions when I think back to my sort of uh, student days, was up there. And, um, and I think then actually Tate, it might have been the Tate in London rather than the Tate in Liverpool, had a show of what I think they were calling it the New British, the New British Art or the New Figurative yeah, yeah, Art yeah, yeah. or something like that. And I was uh, thinking, you know, it would be great to kind of really pull out those works again and actually have that show again. Yeah. Or you know, that in relation to the contemporary uh, new figurative. So um, I think for me, artists like, you know, those ones that were really important to me back then still resonate, like uh, Lisa Milroy and Stephen Conroy. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, So I think certainly they would have to feature, but um, quite who else I would put in there? That's the thing, it wouldn't necessarily be a very cohesive show. That doesn't matter, does it? Okay. Well, you know, you could have a room each, right? Yeah. And then you could sort of walk <clears throat> me through my 
through the experience. I think um, some of the Gordon Chung's recent work as yeah. well. Yeah, I, I did. I, I was fortunate enough to have a studio visit there. Uh, nice. It wasn't last year; it was the year before. Yeah, so it's a it's a great space if you're still there. Also, this question makes me kind of run through all my sort of uh, you know visual experience, yeah. right? Of what have I ever seen in my life that made me stop and pay attention? Um, so I'm probably I would have something like um, <clears throat> probably I would have somebody like Alexandra Dillon who is an artist who actually paints on very sort of hardware items and yeah. things like that I mean she produces a really quite beautiful work so I think somebody like her and then um, Oh, I don't know. I think I'd have to probably... I think I'd really like to put on a show with um, the stone sculptors that I've been... I've had both on the podcast and then there's a couple of others that I've got uh, scheduled as well. They make very sort of figurative um, stone sculptures. You know, you might have seen Barbara Segal does the handbags yeah, yeah. and then um, Sebastian with the yeah. um, denim and they the towels. Sorry to interrupt, but them handbags are stunning. They are exquisite, Sorry. yeah. And then we've got Alistair Thompson hopefully coming on the podcast, and he's a Scottish artist because Sebastian and uh, Barbara are US-based, but um, Al's work I came across several years ago, and he does this incredible sort of... Um, I don't think he's doing quite so much of it now, but it was um, clothes, like it'll be like a lady's dress or something, as if it's hanging on a hanger. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. And, I think now he's uh, but I know the work. Yeah, so his stuff I would love to, you know, really kind of get into a show and, and put that into conversation with other things. You know, whether it's around trompe l'oeil, whether it's around uh, contemporary figurative or... I would, I would probably want to place it in that context rather than just being a show about stone. Mm. But, you know, one way or another, I think those um, sculptors have got something really interesting to say. Um, Stephen Shaheen is another one, actually, as well, based in the US. But he's doing this really interesting work with... Um, producing like bone forms um, like ribs and fibula oh, yeah. and tibia and all of that but from both sort of animals and people um, out of marble which is really interesting yeah. because marble yeah. is actually the compressed yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. bones and crustacean all of that you know right from the, from the earth um, but then sort of bring it back into like those uh, sculptural forms so his work would be quite interesting as well and that's kind of quite an interesting because um, it makes it a really interesting discourse around uh, excellent if you weren't <laughs> the music's going to cut out Someone's going to say, oh, your record's skipping in the back. <laughs> if you weren't in the arts, what would you like to be? I can't really imagine not being in the arts one way or another because I think a large part of me is actually, you know, I've made my own... I forged my own path with it. I've created that. So whether it's, you know, originally, like I, I've done it through volunteering when, you know, I'd like volunteer for open house and things yeah. like that. Um, whether it's through being a student, uh, whether it's being a collector, and then, you know, kind of doing things like, you know, obviously putting on exhibitions and then promoting artists and having a podcast. So I think if I wasn't in the arts, I would find a way to 
do that, yeah. which I think in many ways I already have. Nice. The gallery, What's what, where's the gallery at the moment? The gallery is online at the moment, so in the last couple of years since leaving um, the space at Waterloo, we've had some pop-ups. Um, I haven't got any others scheduled for the moment, so you can go online to see it there. Um, but we're probably sort of changing things up with that yeah. in the coming year. Yeah, good. And the curator salon, where are you with that at the moment? So the curator salon um, is it's an online platform. You know, it's a lot of um, the blog posts that go with the podcasts that I do. It is um, conversations with artists and things like that. Um, through that platform, I also have a little there's an educational side though a lot of that happens in the Facebook group and then um, that's you know where you can find out more ways of working with me whether it's as an artist that you want support in your business or if it's for um, people that run spaces and um, environments you know that they want help with curatorial support or a curator to yeah, sort of yeah. bring in and put on exhibitions for different ways of using that space and then uh, in the past um, I've also kind of actually independently but I'm going to sort of bring it all under the curator's salon now because I've run gallery suppers as well um, yeah so that was really good and um, I realised that actually last year basically a family member was dying so a lot of that time I was not around to really kind of spend as much time in you know in my art business and um, obviously um, things have you know changed for this year so I'm thinking probably you know we'll go back to having the gallery suppers again it was very yeah, much a summer nice. thing and that was kind of bringing together artists and uh, people in the art world but I think we'll sort of cast the net wider this time as well and make them bigger and uh, then we did things like studio visits as well um, and that might be another thing that we sort of think about yeah. this time you know if, if there are people interested because one of the things that's been happening with my doing the podcast is it's really made me feel like I needed to grow a platform to yeah. promote those yeah, artists and so in doing that I've yeah, I, I, you know that's that's working really well for me. I'm using Instagram as my main sort of um, way of uh, reaching people and mm. talking to people or promoting the podcast or whatever it is. Um, but I think it will be nice to have some real world interaction. Yeah. And I think uh, bringing the gallery suppers back, maybe doing occasional studio tours, or it might even be like you know saying like, okay, well, me and Gary are going to go and see this exhibition if you'd like to come. Yeah. Then you know we'll see you at this yeah, nice. uh, exhibition at this time yeah. in the foyer or something you know yeah, and good. that might be a, a nice sort of thing to do as well and meet people that are interested in what we're doing and at the moment on your podcast on the Curator Salon as we speak you have um, a podcast talking about the Venice Biennale so yeah that's right so one of the things I did last year um, when I pulled away from doing the work with the visual arts charity was actually spend more time uh, learning and going back into sort of uh, training around my own curatorial practice because one of the things I knew was that that particular visual arts festival was working on a hyper local level and I knew that I wanted to kind of do more things I wanted to do bigger things and that could even be international and I didn't feel that um, I was exploring that enough so I, did, I spent some time training in Rome at the British School. I was in Venice for the Biennale as well. I did some training around that. So that episode actually came out of that because that was a really uh, interesting time. But more than that, it wasn't, you know, while as much as it was about my 
learning around, you know, developing my curatorial practice or how to participate in larger um, platforms. It was also around, like, actually encouraging other artists mm. that they can take part in places like the Venice Biennale as well. And that opportunity is available to them because I really think with things like Venice that, you know, the only artists that seem to get exposure in the press in the UK would be, you know, the ones that represent yeah, the yeah, National yeah, Pavilion, yeah. and that's not a true representation of it. Um, you know, that might be media-worthy, that might be because you've got the British Council putting, you know, funding behind, mm. you know, some uh, press coverage or whatever it is, but there are still ways for artists to show independently or as collectives, which I think the idea of collectives is really interesting mm. as well. Well, I'm going there for the first time this year. Are you? When are you going to be there? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know yet. Oh. We, my friend Lee Ainsworth, he got... He's taken me from a 50th. Oh, fantastic. So I was 50 last year, so he's going to take me this year. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah, I'm going to be there for the opening weekend, so if you're there, then... It won't be there. It won't be there. No, I very much doubt it. The Curator's Salon, where can people listen to it? Where can they find it? The Curator's Salon Art Podcast you can find on any place that you get your uh, podcast, which is Spotify, iTunes, um, Google Play and so on. Uh, you can also find the website at thecuratorsalon.com where all the episodes are published along with the corresponding blog posts and then they're illustrated with images too. And is an Instagram? Instagram is the best place to find me, yes. It's at the Gita Joshi. At the Gita Joshi. Well, that's the end of my questions and the end of this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. It's been loads of fun. Well, there you have it. Miss Gita Joshi. There was a little bit more atmospheric noise than we were both expecting, but that did push me to go and order a couple of microphones that are specifically designed to cut out background noise for if ever I'm in that sort of situation again. But it was quite funny when the people sitting next to us got the better of Geeta and I, and laughter took over. We did speak afterwards about doing something together in the future, maybe an art tour or an exhibition or something down those lines, but that's all got to be finalised. But whatever we decide, I know one thing, I'm very much looking forward to it. But until then, if you haven't done already, go over to Geeta's Curator's Salon podcast. There's a great one on the Venice Biennale. There's one on Jeremy Wolfe, who's artist-in-residence at the Empire State Building. But my favourite was possibly Patricia Volk. That was back in September. But go over to the Curator's Salon podcast yourself. She's got dozens to choose from. And speaking of podcast collaborations, I was down at Jealous Gallery a couple of weeks ago and I bumped into Rowan Newton, one third of the Artproof podcast. He was preparing some prints for his up-and-coming solo show at Jealous. And disturbing him for five minutes, we were speaking all things podcast. During that conversation, Rowan mentioned how it could be a good idea if the Artproof podcast, Geeta Joshi's Curator Salon, and the Mizog Art Podcast all got together and done an end-of-year summary. I think that'd be something quite special, because all the podcasts are very different. And a couple of weeks ago, I got invited onto one of the biggest podcasts out there, which is called Hardcore Listings. It's presented by Chris and Stu, and it's part of Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces Network. I got invited on there to tell my story how I got into art, as well as telling my story... The podcast concluded with me talking about the Face Value Free exhibition in aid of Katie Piper Foundation that is happening on the 18th of April down at Jealous Gallery. I did intend only to have 30 artists for this exhibition, but I'm already up to 46. 
we've got such artists as Jessica Alban, Charming Baker, Riker, the Connor Brothers, Patrick Hughes, Gary Hume, um, Pure Evil, Rankin. We've got Richard Woods, Nettie Wakefield, and Mr. Rolling Stones himself, Mr. Ronnie Wood. But I'm doing a full episode on that on April the 15th, along with Katie Piper herself. At the end of this podcast, like I say every week, there should be a reviews and comments section somewhere within the platform that you listen to it. If you could just spend a couple of moments just to leave a comment, that would really help me and anybody else looking for an arts podcast. If you want to ask me any questions or see what's going on, you can go to any of the social medias, which is at MizogArt, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Or to see a full lineup of future artists, you can go to www.mizogart.com. So that's all from me. Thanks for listening. And until next week, ta-da. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.